0: Hello and welcome to The Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Thanks for watching. I'm going to continue our series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount by reading a few verses from Matthew chapter 6 and verses 1 to 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, uh, Jesus' uh, teaching in the final verses of chapter 5 must have really been extremely difficult for his audience to accept um, his challenge for them to love their enemies. It's our natural tendency to always want to retaliate against those who have hurt us, to strike back, uh, certainly to hate our enemies. But Jesus calls his disciples to love their enemies and that means we must do them no harm. We have not to wound them with words or engage in physical violence uh, in in any way. Uh, In fact, many Christians have argued throughout the ages to wound or kill others in Jesus' name is to deny the name. Now with barely a pause, Jesus continues to deal with issues that are particularly the issue of righteousness that his audience probably felt that they really had understood very well, that they really had it all together on that particular issue. But Jesus challenges their understanding by presenting them with an alternative perspective on what it actually means to be righteous. He addresses three religious duties that would have been basic requirements among the community of disciples, especially among those who had come from a Jewish background. Uh, Charity, praying and fasting. These three duties that he, he speaks about are not in any way definitive of all the duties of the righteous. Rather, they are chosen simply to illustrate a principle that is to be applied to all religious duties and activities. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount from the very beginning, you might notice what appears to be a contradiction in Jesus' teaching. In chapter 5 and verse 16, he tells his disciples to uh, to let their light shine before others so that they can see their good deeds and as a result, they will glorify God. But here in chapter 6, verse 1, he says virtually the opposite. The apparent conflict is only one of language though, because the two texts are actually in agreement with one another. In chapter 5, the emphasis is on the kind of life that the disciple is called to live and the influence they ought to have in the wider society. Contrary to what our culture would like us to believe, faith in God is not merely a individual, personal, private matter. Um, it has public consequences. If our faith in God is a genuine faith in God, then it's going to be a lived-out faith that will impact all our social relationships and interactions. It will impact our work, our leisure, how we spend our time and money. It will determine what kind of citizens we will be. It will determine the causes that we support and indeed the causes that we might oppose. So faith is not an internal private matter. It is very public and should quite specifically and deliberately lead to good deeds, some of which will unavoidably and by necessity be done in public. So if public good deeds are necessary and at times unavoidable, why does Jesus appear to speak against them here? Well, If we read the text carefully, we notice that Jesus doesn't actually forbid his disciples from doing good deeds in public. Rather, he simply tells them that they have to be careful when they do them in public. Um, The basic principle seems to be that we should do our good deeds secretly so that only God knows about them. But... If we cannot do them secretly, if by necessity they must be done in public, that is in front of other people, then we have to be very careful both how and why we do them. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about issues like anger and murder and adultery and his primary concern was the motivation of our hearts. He demonstrated that these acts are committed, first of all, in our hearts long before we ever act them out. Now, in exactly the same way, the concern here is that we must be careful of our motives for doing good deeds in public, where there is such a great opportunity for self-promotion and self-glorification rather than glorifying God. Uh, the expression that's used a lot these days is virtue signalling. You, know, you get people on social media um, you know, telling a story about some wonderful good deed that they've done, and what they're really looking for is for lots of people to like Uh, their post uh, and indeed to praise them for the wonderful thing that they have done. (coughs) The verb that is translated as take care means to concentrate or to give attention to something and as theologian Leon Morris notes, Jesus is inviting his hearers to concentrate on the central thing when they perform any act of righteousness. The believer must keep in mind that the act is righteous only if it is what it purports to be the service of God. When it is done as a means of enhancing the reputation of the doer of the deed, then it is no longer a simple act of divine service. Jesus' expectation is that his disciples will live out their faith in the public square in the web of relationships that define the shape of the real world and of our lives. But he wants us to be aware that faith lived out in, every, in the everyday world brings with it some inherent dangers. One of those dangers is that we will perform the correct and necessary and commendable works of righteousness, but we will do them for completely the wrong reasons. That we will do it for, to receive the praise of man rather than the praise of God. Jesus is warning his disciples to guard against the perverse tendency to do good deeds in order to receive human admiration because that actually forfeits divine reward. Leonard Cohen famously sang that there's a crack in everything and the Apostle Paul puts that another way when he says that all have sinned and fallen short. So if you've never fallen prey to this tendency of self-promotion and doing good deeds Maybe it's because you've never actually done any good deeds. The fact is that all of us want to be appreciated and admired by others. And if you say that you don't care about that, then you're just kidding yourself on. All of us want to be admired and praised and acknowledged for all the good things uh, that we do. It's our human nature. I'm always amused when I read about a celebrity complaining about their privacy being invaded. What they usually mean is that they weren't in control of profiting from that particular story. Uh, Celebrities depend on the adulation and worship of the masses. It's what makes them celebrities. Now, most of us might not be celebrities, but we do all want, and in some way, to some degree, that same sense of being appreciated and admired for who we are and for what we do. One of the easiest ways to receive that admiration is to do some good deed publicly, or at least to let it be known that you've done some good deed. You know how that works. You just let it slip into conversation that you were the one who paid for such and such, or that you were the one who left the groceries at someone's door or whatever. It's easily done. Jesus says some of the things here that ought to make us think twice when we are looking for admiration for others for our good works. Firstly, he basically says, if you let others know that you're what you've done with the hope or expectation of being admired by those people and at the same time expect a reward from God for your good deed, forget it. The admiration of people that you crave will be your only reward. In contrast, If you can give in secret, if you can help in secret, and you do that because you want to obey God by doing what pleases him, then you will receive an eternal reward. Secondly, Jesus says here that to do good deeds with the motivation of being admired or of enhancing your reputation makes you a hypocrite because you're suggesting it's your inner righteousness that has motivated you to do it, when in fact you've been motivated by your own vanity and pride. The word hypocrite is used in Matthew for the first time here and it refers to someone who is an actor. Originally it referred to an actor who wore a mask to play a part. Jesus is suggesting here then that religious activity is not for those who love to put on a show for other people but for those who sincerely love and serve God. And. We should note that hypocrisy is never taken lightly in in Scripture, especially religious hypocrisy. For example, in Amos 5 and 21, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God had commanded all those religious practices, but the people were performing them insincerely, hypocritically, because they were not accompanied by true righteous living, which includes living justly. We also want to take note of God's views on hypocrisy because hypocrisy is a charge that is often made against the church by the world. The world also has a disregard for hypocrites. If life is indeed just a stage and we are all actors who must play our part, as Shakespeare said, then according to what Jesus says here, we must play our part for an audience of one as much as we possibly can. Eugene Pearson comments that the Christian who cares only for God's approval lives free of the tyranny of conformist pressures, relaxed under the steady direction of the God who loves us and gives himself for us. Those who try to please the world by their good behaviour very quickly find themselves under the unkind surveillance of a thousand critics. We should also note that the illustration that Jesus uses first relates not just to general public good deeds but specifically giving to the poor, which would have been especially important in the first century when poverty was so very widespread and there was no official help for the poor other than the charity of individuals. And take note though that Jesus doesn't say if you give to the poor, but rather he says when you give. He seems to be thinking not so much of a one-off event but of a continual habit and his expectation is that his disciples will give to the poor as a natural consequence of their discipleship. The question then is not will we do it but how we should do it and we should be in no doubt that Jesus is not thinking here about good intentions or a sense of pity but the act of giving to the poor and those in need. Uh, I think it was uh, Gustavo Gutierrez who said, uh, you you claim to care for the poor, so name them. You know, there's that personal aspect. If, if you know someone who's poor, then you have a responsibility to help if you can. Giving to the poor and needy is not always an easy or straightforward uh, thing for us as it might seem. On the one hand, we might not think we have much, if anything, to give. We might even think of ourselves as being poor and needy. On the other hand, we are bombarded daily by pleas for money from a wide variety of causes, each one of them very worthy and necessary. And it's just this huge weight that's placed on us of the need of the world. And we feel uh, you know, challenged and depressed because we, we cannot in any way hope to meet the, that weight of expectations to, to solve the, the needs of the world. How, how then should we respond? It's helpful to remember some key guiding principles from scripture that can help to shape our giving. Firstly we should note that giving from the heart is investing with God in the future. Luke chapter 6 verse 38 suggests that the generosity we show to others will be the measure of the generosity that will be shown to us. Secondly, giving should be in some way sacrificial. In 2 Samuel 24 and 24, David declares he will not give to the Lord anything that cost him nothing. And in Mark 12, the widow's offering of two coins was deemed to be greater than all the money put in by everyone else because she gave all she had. Sometimes we're reluctant to give because we're afraid that we won't have enough for ourselves. We need to remember that in such times that everything we have comes from God and that God promises to meet our every need. Thirdly, giving is always to be unforced. You know, Paul writes in two Corinthians nine, "Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously." Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. No one else can tell you what you should give or what you should do. Um, it has to be from your own heart your own response to the Holy Spirit prompting your own heart uh, to give to those in need. Fourthly, giving is a response to need. The money that Paul was collecting from the churches was a response to the great need of the church in Jerusalem. And it's likely that persecution meant that many believers lost jobs, uh, etc. and were in real trouble financially. Note that Jesus doesn't say, whenever you give to those who are in need through no fault of their own. It's not for us to judge whether someone deserves to be helped. Rather, if we see someone in need and we have the means and the desire to meet that need, um, then Jesus assumes here that we will help as we are able. I think we should note that whilst it's not a bad thing um, at all to support international or national pleas uh, for help such as, you know, the, 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 the war in Ukraine at the minute, there's lots of, of pleas for humanitarian aid for that uh, and other situations around the, the world. But we ought not to neglect the poor and the needy whom we know personally, those whom we see day by day. If you know of a, a neighbour or a colleague or a church member who needs help, and you are able to meet that need, then you probably should. Again, uh, I'm not uh, wanting to force you into helping someone uh, uh, in some way, but it's something perhaps you should pray about and ask uh, God's direction on what you should do. Paul's very clear about that. The Bible is very clear that all giving um, is is a response of a heart, Um, that has been moved by the Spirit of God uh, to help those in need. You can't be forced to do it. Secondly, uh, sorry, uh, fifthly, um, giving should be done in secret if at all possible. The basic principle is laid out here for us. If we give to the poor and needy in secret, motivated by love and compassion and a desire for God to be glorified with no thought of recognition or appreciation for ourselves, then our Heavenly Father who sees it will reward us and his approval ought to be enough for us. As one preacher puts it, If we remember, God will forget. But if we forget, God will remember. Our purpose should be to meet every need we are able to meet and leave the bookkeeping to God. You know, we live in a a world of uh, great need in the United Kingdom today after uh, 12 years of austerity um, and uh, the financial crises of recent months. um, You know, many people are pushed to poverty. I read a story today of an elderly lady who died of hypothermia because she was too afraid to turn on her heating at home because she couldn't afford to do that. And that's the situation that people are in. People are choosing between eating and heating. Um, And many people we know around about us are in dire straits and it can feel overwhelming. We can't meet every need of every person. But if there is a person who is in need and we are able to meet that need then then we should take that as being something a way that we can serve god and meet that need and help that person but what jesus says here sometimes sometimes other people are going to know about that and there's nothing you can do by necessity depending on the circumstances but if you can do it at all in secret without anyone knowing, perhaps without even the person uh, you're helping really knowing. Then, um, when I remember once, I, I, um, I never got paid from my, my employer, and, and, you know, 10 days in, uh, with not getting paid, um, you know, the, the cupboards were bare. And I hadn't told anyone about it, I'd just prayed about it. Um, but I went home from from work one day, and there were three bags of groceries, um, behind the storm door of my flat that someone had um, had bought for me. Um, and to this day, you know, more than 36, 37 years later, I still don't know who did that. Uh, but that was a, a, a real need that I had that someone met in secret. And I thank God for it. God was glorified because of it. And I think that's the way to go Um, when we give to the needy and remember that Jesus doesn't say if he says when we give to those in need. Our faith is not to be a private faith for our benefit but to be lived out in the public square for the world and for the glory of God. Thanks for listening.